Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me again as we explore a direct attack on the most important message God has ever given His people in all of Earth's history. The world is getting darker, and at the very time when the fullness of the light of the truth about Christ's righteousness in the three angels' messages is to be shared, there are those among us who are preparing a coordinated, broadside attack on those that uphold the truths committed to the last generation. They want to make it very unpopular to believe Bible truth concerning the last generation. Yet this group of theological elites think they know better than anybody else what God's truth is, and people look up to them because they have advanced degrees from universities. Their focus will surprise you. In their own words, I will show you what they are really aiming for. They're trying to convince you that you don't need to concern yourself about being prepared for the time of trouble that is soon to come upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. But before we begin today, let me thank you for your support for Keep the Faith. Without your prayers and gifts, we would not have been able to serve so many people with the truth for this time. Your friendship has made a big difference both to our work at Keep the Faith and our work in our wellness centers in Australia. This is real missionary work. And as we come to the very end of this year, I hope you will consider our request to help us take our wellness retreats to the next level. We are looking for $250,000 to expand our team so that we can handle the right amount of guests. We already have received pledges of $75,000 toward matching your gift. In other words, for every dollar you give, it will be matched by a corresponding gift of $1 up to $75,000 so far. But I'm seeking another $50,000 to take the matching offer all the way up to $125,000. If you can help us with an extra special gift at this time so that we can max out the matching gift, we will reach our $250,000 goal. Please see the little card inside your packet this month, and thank you for your generous support. Don't forget to renew your subscription if you haven't already. Time is running out. Uh, we'll probably update the database sometime in February. And here's how we do this. We don't have subscription software that handles each subscriber individually. So it's not like a subscription magazine where they send individual notices to their subscribers when their subscription is about to run out. Plus, we can't afford the cost of segmenting the mailing list from those that have renewed each month from those who haven't. Perhaps in future we'll be able to do that. But in the meantime, we send renewal notices to everyone for about six to eight months routinely, once every two or three years. If you've sent in your renewal, you won't need to do it a second time. Just ignore the renewal slip. And if you haven't sent in your renewal, please do so. You don't want to miss anything. 
Did you know that The Last Generation magazine has just celebrated 30 years of service? This Present Truth soul-winning magazine has been faithfully publishing the Three Angels' messages now for 30 years. When the name Last Generation was chosen, no one imagined that one day the concept of the Last Generation will be challenged by top theologians and professors of the seminaries and church organization. The magazine staff has even been urged to change its name so that it isn't banned as heretical by prejudiced and biased individuals. But they've decided through thoughtful prayer that it would be cowardly to haul down the magazine's distinctive banner at such a critical time in our church's history. And while you still have the opportunity, subscribe to this magazine for yourself and for others. You'll find a handy order form in your KTF mailer with a special missionary discount. With the way things are shaping up in this world, we don't know how much time we will have to freely circulate the Three Angels' messages through the U.S. mail. Firebell in the Night is our new DVD series that I taped at Secrets Unsealed. Yes, Secrets Unsealed and Keep the Faith have partnered again to bring you another 10-part series of sermons on DVD just for you. America and the rest of the world are nearing a major crisis in religious liberty. As the Trump administration tightens its relationship with its voter base, the conservative evangelical community, and as conservative evangelical leaders increasingly influence political decisions in the United States, both domestic and foreign, God's people need to understand the prophetic counsel concerning where this unity of church and state will lead. Our brand new DVD series called Firebell in the Night is perfectly timed. This DVD series addresses the principle that God's people are on this very moment with religious liberty. Once evangelical leaders get America back on track, as they say, what then will they do? You need to understand this prophetic dynamic in today's context. You can read about it in the book, The Great Controversy. But this DVD series puts it into the context of current events. Please call our office, 540-672-3553. We now have these in stock. They're only $44.95 plus shipping. And if you live in Australia, call our office there at 03 7011 and order your own set of Firebell in the Night. It is only 58.95 AUD plus shipping. They are definitely worth having. Also, you can order both sets of these messages in audio format on CD or MP3. That way you can use these messages when you commute or drive around town. You'll get an additional 5% discount if you order both sets at the same time on CD or MP3. Now as we begin, let us bow our heads and pray. Our dear Father in heaven, it is no surprise that the enemy of souls wants to destroy your end-time church. We are living in confusing times, and sometimes even good people can get caught up in a deception because it comes from respected religious leaders. That's happening all the time in most churches today. But unfortunately, it is also happening in God's church, in your church. Please send your Holy Spirit to teach us how to understand the things that are developing today in the battle over last generation doctrine and keep our eyes wide open. In Jesus' name, amen.
Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. The scripture tells us the amazing power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Stephen. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. You see, Stephen was dragged before the religious leaders at the Jewish council. These men were the elders, like the rabbis, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. The high priest was there too. These were the theologians, professors, and church leaders of the day. Stephen gave them a powerful testimony of Jesus Christ. They saw his face as the face of an angel, it says in verse 15. The apostle says in chapter 7, verse 54, that they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. In other words, they became so enraged that they lost control of themselves. But Stephen was given a vision of heaven with Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. But they were so full of rage that they lost their reason and dragged him out of the city and stoned him. Now let's think about this for a minute. Here was the Jewish church leaders, the professors and theologians, hurling stones at Stephen until they killed him. He did not die with the first stone, or the second, or the third. In fact, there may have been many stones thrown at him until finally one hit him so hard, probably on the head, that it killed him. These stones were of the same material, probably a pale dolomitic limestone, which has been used in building materials since ancient times. These stones were not cut stones. They were broken stones with many facets each. They were small enough to grab them, with one hand and hurl it forcefully at the offender. Perhaps the final stone that killed Stephen was larger and was picked up by one of those angry men and raised above his head and forcefully brought down upon his skull. No doubt you remember this story, but today I'm going to make an unusual application of it to our own times. But before I do, I must give you some background information about what is going on today. Today we're going to examine a devastating attack on God's last threefold message, the three angels' messages. This attack is going to shake God's church to its core. The rebellion to God and his requirements for salvation among his own people has just gone to a new level. Perhaps it has gone viral. What was once believed and taught by Bible-believing members of God's church is now being openly ridiculed and opposed as if it should be on the trash heap of history. Even the theologians at the seminaries have come out against it. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 18, 1-4. Let us read these verses. And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies." And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. These words reveal that at the end of time there will be a people represented by an angel who have a unique 
and vitally important message to share with a very dark world under the bright power of the Holy Spirit in the latter reign. Babylon represents the false system of worship that will take over the world through collaboration with the rulers and economic leaders of the world. The loud voice refers to the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people who have made themselves ready for Jesus to use them in the time of the latter reigns, to call as many as possible out of Babylon to join God's faithful in proclaiming his last message of righteousness amid prevailing evil and temptation. This is a special last generation of human beings. There is no getting around it without twisting scripture and the teachings of God's messenger to the last generation. The last generation is a thought system of biblically informed, theologically mature, and spiritually balanced people that God will use in a powerful and special way in the last days to reveal his character through Christ living in them. And because of his special presence in their lives, by their Christian standards, and by their love for lost souls, they will be given the Holy Spirit in latter rain power and will call people around the world out of false systems of worship, especially that of Roman Catholicism and her fallen daughter churches, to join God's true people in the true worship of Jehovah. The message to come out of Babylon will be given at a time when it will be a very unpopular message. The ecumenical movement, which has united the fallen churches with Rome, has made it that way. Even though Rome is riddled with scandals, yet people still want to collaborate with her because she helps them get power and money, so they don't fight her too strongly. Yet Rome will be fully exposed. While minds are being blinded to her iniquity, her sins are shouted from the rooftops. And the wickedness is not merely skin deep, it is systemic. It is the nature of the beast. It's in its DNA. As the enemy's power is manifested in the world on virtually every front, God intends to have a group of people that will vindicate his character and the character of Christ in its purity and answer the final questions in the great controversy between Christ and Satan amid the darkest and most dramatic time ever in the history of the world, a time of trouble such as never was. That's Matthew 24, 21. As Rome covers the record of her horrible cruelties with pious apologetic language, along with beautiful vestments, gold-plated chalices, rosary beads, financial settlements, and hush money, she remains unchanged. She is still the great apostate. The Bible still declares her to be the prime cause of the wickedness in the last days. In contrast, God will have a people who will condemn her publicly and draw attention to the Spirit of God within them by their righteous or sinless lives, so that he can complete his work in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary and answer the final objections that the enemy hurls at Christ and end this world of sin and suffering. The last generation of God's people are those who will draw special attention to God's law. They are a very special people that have been given a very special message to share with the world, namely the third angel's message of Revelation 14, 9-11, which we will read in a minute. Listen to this statement, though, from The Great Controversy, page 606. Thus the message of the third angel will be proclaimed. 
as the time comes for it to be given with greatest power, the Lord will work through humble instruments, leading the minds of those who consecrate themselves to his service. This will be men and women like Stephen. They are not educated by the religious leaders and theologians of the day. They are common people. What this statement is saying is that by consecrating themselves to his service, they are completely disassociating from Satan and will no longer serve him in any way. That means that they are determined to live a consecrated, law-abiding life. They have renounced all sin, and now Christ gives them power to resist every temptation of the enemy, however small or large. I'll read on. The laborers will be qualified rather by the unction of his spirit than by the training of literary institutions. Notice that it is the unction of the spirit, not the academic degrees, that will qualify those messengers that will receive the latter rain. If you have a degree from some literary institution, plead with God to purge you of anything that you were taught that is not according to his word. This is not saying that there aren't those among the last generation that have literary degrees from academic institutions. But unfortunately, it is often those with academic degrees that are now arguing against last generation principles and even its doctrines. I'll continue reading. Men of faith and prayer will be constrained to go forth with holy zeal, declaring the words which God gives them. The sins of Babylon will be laid open, the fearful results of enforcing the observances of the church by civil authority, the inroads of spiritualism, the stealthy but rapid progress of the papal power, all will be unmasked. You see, my friends, this is the message, and it leads to the message of the fourth angel of Revelation 18, which represents that unique last generation of faithful souls who give the final warning and the loud cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, Matthew 25, verse 6. We find the fullness of that message and the contrast between the people of God and the people of the enemy in the last days in Revelation 14, 6 through 12. Let us read it. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast or his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up for ever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Verses 6 and 7 are about the people of God who worship him according to his law. They are the ones who live by the principles of health reform. They are the ones who keep God's holy seventh-day Sabbath. They are the ones that turn from all iniquity and give glory to God by their lives. What does glory represent in Scripture? It represents character, 
So in other words, their characters are like that of Christ, because Christ lives in them. And because he does, they stop sinning because they love him so much. They aren't trying to work their way to heaven. They are just so loyal to Christ that the enemy has no appeal to them at all, no way to get them to do his bidding on any front. This in itself is a unique experience. The three angels' messages are the most complete, the most comprehensive, the most systematic, and the most mature, and therefore the most unique message ever handed to a group of people in all of history. These three angels and their messages are a summary of the whole scripture, actually. Their connection to the other parts of scripture is like a complex web in which its threads connect in multiple places throughout the scriptures, linking multiple layers of content and ideas. That message is stern and startling, and under the power of the latter rain awakens people to their danger. And because it is unique, those that give it must also be unique in their lives. But the conditions of salvation today are what they have always been. Listen to this from Steps to Christ, page 62. The condition of eternal life is now just what it always has been, just what it was in paradise before the fall of our first parents, perfect obedience to the law of God, perfect righteousness. If eternal life were granted on any condition short of this, then the happiness of the whole universe would be imperiled. The way would be open for sin, with all its train of woe and misery, to be immortalized. Yet today there are many people who are members of God's remnant church that teach otherwise. You cannot overcome sin, they say. You cannot keep all the commandments, even by the grace and power of Christ living in you. This argument has been going on for a long time. And there are some very smooth and articulate scholars and teachers in the schools and seminaries and universities of God's church that are teaching this to the next generation of church leaders, whether pastors or administrators. For over 60 years, there's been a steady increase in those who no longer believe that there are a special people in these last days, and they include current and retired seminary professors, or the rabbis, church leaders, the elders, and many prominent lay people who support them. They've been throwing theological stones at a figurative Stephen, which are those who believe the Bible's last-generation concepts. Many books and articles have been written about this, so I'm not going to give a Bible study on each of these figurative stones. But here are some examples. One of the stones hurled at the true followers of Jesus these days, the Stevens of our time, is that sin is by nature, not by choice. That means that you and I were born guilty of Adam's sin, this is unbiblical. Sinful flesh is not guilty flesh. It is weakened flesh that inevitably chooses to sin. But that flesh, when empowered by Christ living within, also by choice, can overcome all the temptations of the enemy. But remember, it is by choice. And those who oppose the truth about sin by choice, not by nature, do not believe you can be an overcomer. They are ultimately saying that you will continue to live in sin until Jesus comes, in spite of what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 so many times. They do not believe that Christ can give you ultimate and total victory before he comes. They do not want you to be an example of righteous living in Christ. They don't want you to be a modern Noah or Enoch 
After all, this would make them a liar. But they are already liars because they claim to be followers of Jesus, but they do not believe or teach that it is possible to keep all his commandments. Here's what the Bible says about this in 1 John 2 verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. These are the men and women who are trying to undermine the truth of the Bible on righteousness by faith. These are they who do not accept the great controversy. They do not teach a powerful Christ who is able to keep you from falling, Jude 24. Here's another stone hurled at our figurative Stephen, or the last generation of believers. Jesus did not come in fallen sinful flesh, they say, because if he did, he would have been a sinner. This is also false, but it cuts to the heart of biblical last-generation concepts. Jesus demonstrated that it is possible to live without sin in in sinful flesh, and therefore he intends to demonstrate it in the lives of his last-generation followers. The Bible is very clear about this, and there is a lot of material available on this topic today. Here is yet another stone hurled at the last generation. The message of full victory over sin contradicts the Bible message of salvation by faith alone. The opponents of last generation principles accuse those who believe that Christ is able to keep you from falling into temptation of being legalists and trying to earn their salvation through obedience. Nothing could be further from the truth. The true follower of Jesus lives by all the Ten Commandments, but it is Christ in him that obeys them all. It cannot be done any other way. You see, these false teachers are teaching a weak and worthless Christ. They teach a superficial gospel and that Christ is unable to save to the uttermost and deliver me from my sins and empower me never to do them again. That's far better than merely being pulled out of the gutter and to keep on sinning at least to some degree, to save to the uttermost means that every temptation can be overcome. Listen to this powerful statement from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 360. He who has not sufficient faith in Christ to believe that he can keep him from sinning has not the faith that will give him an entrance into the kingdom of God. Notice that it is Christ that keeps us from sinning, not ourselves. Here's another stone thrown toward our modern Stephen. These opponents of Bible faith suggest that after the close of probation, the righteous will stand on their own. This is also utterly false. The only thing that the saints, and all of humanity for that matter, will not have after the close of probation is a means or a method of forgiveness. The wicked have passed the point of no return, and the righteous will have Christ in them so fully that They will not sin any longer, no matter how much the pressure. Christ stands by their side and works for them to will and to do of his good pleasure. They no longer need an intercessor. Christ demonstrates the truth of his power, and the enemy's allegations are finally defeated. I'll mention one more of many stones that have been hurled at those who teach the concept of a unique people at the end of time, the figurative Stephen. They try to say that the teachings of the last generation have never been part of the teaching of the mainstream remnant church. This is patently false also. The book called The Great Controversy was first published in 1884 in an abbreviated edition and was later expanded in subsequent editions until 1911. 
when the final edition was published. It was the centerpiece of last-generation concepts and theology, but it is also a biblical concept. Revelation 12 reveals a special people in the last days that are called the remnant and who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy according to Revelation 19 verse 10. This is a unique people with a unique work to do, but their own fellow church members depreciate and despise them, ridicule them, and oppose them at every turn. Friends, these stones are an attack on the three angels' messages, the fourth angel of Revelation 18, the Sabbath, the meaning of the sanctuary in heaven, and the Antichrist, among other things. And if you follow these false teachings to their logical conclusions, you will find that they are an attack on the core message of God's last church itself in the name of defending it. And now the conflict has matured and the largest and most devastating stone of all is going to be hurled at our figurative Stephen. This is the stone that killed him. Will it kill us? This was the stone that the young Saul watched crash into the head of Stephen as he held the coats of those angry, out-of-control church leaders and seminary professors. He was convinced of the righteousness of Stephen's cause. This was the seed that was dropped into Saul's heart, that blossomed into repentance as he sat in the house in Damascus, blind and helpless. That very stone was the foundation or platform for the mighty work of Paul in spreading the truth of the gospel all throughout Asia Minor. What will be the effect of that final modern stone that is figuratively about to be and is already being thrown at the distinctive group of last-generation believers? That deadly stone is the culmination of 60 years of stone-throwing by unbelieving professors and church leaders— it is a direct attack on the idea that there is a people who have a unique work to do in the last days of vindicating Christ and purifying their lives and preparing for the coming time of trouble and the second coming of Christ. In reality, it is a full-on assault on everything the remnant church stands for, including the concept of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. It is a masterpiece of deception designed to marginalize anyone who still believes in a unique and distinctive final generation before Jesus comes. And the battle is pitched, and the conflict is only going to intensify. And I think it's interesting that as the world is polarized and there is anger, resentment, and mob rule between political parties, there's polarization, anger, and even mob rule at times in God's church. The seething undercurrent of hostility to the last generation can be palpated. Three books have been recently written against the last generation concepts of Scripture and the spirit of prophecy. One of them is by George Knight, a retired seminary professor from Andrews University, who has long opposed many of the distinctive teachings of the Bible and spirit of prophecy in relation to the last generation. It is called End Time Events and the Last Generation. He writes with passion against the likes of M. L. Andreasen, who was one of the foremost of faithful men to warn against the change in the last generation doctrine in the 1950s, as manifested in the book Questions on Doctrine. Knight essentially patronizes Andreasen by suggesting that he misunderstood the writings of the book Great Controversy, Desire of Ages, and other inspired books, particularly on the nature of Christ, the nature of sin, and the nature of the atonement. He appears to know better than Andreasen, and through his allegedly scholarly research, 
he has now come to a better understanding of the true meaning of the gospel. Unfortunately, it is more in line with traditional evangelical teachings. And yes, this is the very same man who recently accused the General Conference president of being a Nazi because he disagrees with the president about church discipline. A second book that has recently been published against biblical last-generation principles is by a group of prominent seminary professors from Andrews University called God's Character and the Last Generation. The authors include Gishi Muscala, the dean of the seminary, John Peckham, Woodrow Wooden, Martin Hanna, Richard M. Davidson, Dennis Fortin, who defended the seminary invitation to two Jesuits to teach a class at Andrews University on missions, Ante Jaroncic, Peter Swanson, Darius W. Yankovitz, Felix Cortez, Ranko Stefanovic, and Joanne Davidson. Most of these are current professors, though some are retired. These professors are essentially attempting to sound academic in their assault on God's truth in the last days and put a scholarly spin on their opposition. They are very strongly opposed to perfection of character, even by the grace and power of Christ alone. They are utterly opposed to the idea that God has any special people in these last days that will ultimately vindicate God's character in the final years of earth's history. And now a third book by Rinder Brownsma, former president of the Dutch Union, called In All Humility, Saying No to Last Generation Theology. Brownsma pretends to be pastoral as he undermines publicly once again the teachings of God's Spirit in the book The Great Controversy, among other inspired books and resources. He accuses those who believe in Christ's power to overcome sin as legalists. And though this is nothing new in the conflict between liberals and conservatives, Brownsma is now joining the seminary professors and leaders at Andrews University in assaulting the God-given message of the three angels and the idea that there is a unique people that have a unique work to do in these last days. That's what it really is, my friends, an assault on the very foundations of last-generation doctrine. The Great Controversy theme runs throughout Scripture and history. But it has special significance for those who are living in the last days because Christ is preparing a fully spirit-powered group of people to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. He will stand by their side in the time of trouble when Christ's people are placed under unrelenting pressure to renounce their faith in Christ. But because Christ dwells in them, they will not sin after probation, and therefore they don't need a mediator. It is this concept that these men are determined to undermine. They believe that their emphasis, which is against the Bible and the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy, is correct, and that there is no special people alive today who will fully represent Christ in their characters or who have a special message to give that is different from previous generations or other contemporary churches. These men set up straw men, which is a misrepresentation of last-generation biblical principles. Then they unstuff these straw men and replace them with their own false teachings. Instead of humility, they are 
actually quite arrogant in their public beliefs and teachings because they've set themselves up as the judge of the Bible and spirit of prophecy. They oppose the plainest and clearest statements of the Bible and God's messenger to the remnant church. Statements like the seal of God will never be placed upon the forehead of an impure man or woman. It will never be placed on the upon the forehead of the ambitious, world-loving man or woman. It will never be placed upon the forehead of men or women of false tongues or deceitful hearts. All who receive the seal must be without spot before God, candidates for heaven. That's Testimonies of For the Church, Volume 5, page 216. Friends, these opponents of last generation doctrine do not believe this plain statement. They think it is legalism. They teach that it is not a valid expression of God's will for his people in the last days. But in order to convince the unwitting, they have to spin their specious error as if theirs is the best interpretation of the inspired writings, when in reality, even when quoting the testimonies, they are opposing the very words of inspiration. If we are not the last generation, then why would we care to warn people of Rome's encroachments as described in Revelation 14, 8-11? These men do not believe the warnings. They do not see Rome as the final Antichrist that empowers the nations to fight God and His eternal law through His followers. In fact, Brownsma makes this revealing statement in reviewing George Knight's conclusion, with which he agrees. Listen to what he says. I found Knight's conclusion quite convincing that most of the theological turmoil in which last-generation theology plays an important role is the underlying unceasing tension between those who want to stress the similarities between Adventism and traditional Christianity on the one hand and those who believe in the unique features of Adventism must receive primary attention on the other hand. In other words, Brownsma and Knight are saying that the raging conflict is between those who are more interested in focusing on similarities with other Christian denominations rather than emphasizing that which makes God's last generation distinctive. Friends, this is the very concept behind the ecumenical movement. De-emphasize the unique and distinctive features of your faith while emphasizing the things on which we agree with other denominations, specifically the fallen churches of Babylon, or as Brownsma, along with Knight, call it traditional Christianity. In other words, the anti-last-generation theologians are ecumenical at their foundation. This will lead us straight to Rome, my friends. These authors, in opposing last-generation doctrine, are in reality promoting Romanism without saying so. This is shocking, and though they would never admit it, I wonder if they're infiltrators ordained by Rome to do this divisive work among God's people. After all, this is Rome's pattern. Infiltrate, divide, and conquer. And do it subtly so that few, if anyone, suspects that you are advocating ecumenism. But that is exactly what these men are attempting to do. They may not even understand their own motives or their own logical conclusions, but Brownsma made it clear in that shocking statement of sympathy with the ecumenical movement. But now the division has almost reached its maturity. These liberal elements who are attacking the testimonies, among other things, have been working to destroy God's church for a very long time. Some of them have passed from the scene of action, but new ones have taken their places. How is it that these men now dominate the seminaries and now teach our youthful pastors how to think and to act as well as what kind of message to preach? Are they getting the three angels' messages in the seminary? I would imagine not, particularly since their professors are so opposed to it. 
How is it that many church administrators have similar ideas and fight against the faithful teaching of Scripture on a host of issues? The concept of the remnant, or the last generation, we have believed and taught for 174 years. Now, strangely, some, perhaps many, who are in high positions in the seminaries, the conferences and unions and other places, are beginning a coordinated attack on the last generation principles and teachings. They want to destroy the idea that the last generation ever existed. They want to tell you that there is no unique message given to us to share with the world. They want to tell you that we don't have to declare that Babylon has fallen and that we are to separate from her. They want to go in another direction. This amounts to a direct attack on the biblical doctrines that have guided the last generation church through its history. It's a direct attack on the sanctuary doctrine, the seventh-day Sabbath, the non-immortality of the soul, and any other doctrine that distinguishes God's people from other churches. And it is a direct attack on the authority and inspiration of the spirit of prophecy. If they are successful, they will turn God's church into just another variation of the fallen daughters of Babylon. I have prepared this message today to make you aware of this problem. I would not be faithful to the Lord if I did not do so. But like in Noah's time, I have to tell you the truth. There will be those that will take me to task over some small thing. They will ridicule the idea that you can be an overcomer through Christ living in you at all times. They will mock the idea of the sanctuary in heaven. They will denounce the unique and life-changing truths that have been the pillars of the faith of God's remnant church for two centuries. Two decades ago, when I was the academic dean of Heartland College, I was invited to an academic administrators meeting, which I think was at a fancy hotel resort in Chicago. My wife Betsy and I went to the meeting, though we stayed with friends to save the expense, in order to discover what sort of people were the deans of other universities linked to the remnant church. What I found was shocking. On Sabbath morning, the person chosen to speak for divine service was the dean of one of the universities represented. His main theme seemed to be that we are not the remnant church and that there is no such thing. I couldn't believe my ears. Betsy and I were stunned. I managed to find one other academic administrator that was also fuming about it and commiserated with him. Little did I realize that the seeds had been sown and that they would one day, 20-plus years later, blossom into a full-blown assault on God's distinctive truth for these last days. Friends, they profess friendliness to the testimonies. They quote them often, but they misrepresent them and undermine them. In doing so, they demonstrate they that they actually hate them. Listen to this statement from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 48. There will be a hatred kindled against the testimonies, which is satanic. The workings of Satan will be to unsettle the faith of the churches in them, and for this reason, Satan cannot have so clear a track to bring in his deceptions and bind up souls in his delusions if the warnings and reproofs and counsels of the Spirit of God are unheeded. That's letter 40, 1890. In more recent times, my wife and I attended a medical conference in which the Friday evening speaker, another academic administrator or professor, expressed his discontent with the Bible teachings of the Remnant Church, its doctrines, and its president because he obviously didn't agree with them. Fortunately, there were medicos in the audience who raised the alarm and pointedly criticized him in return for undermining God's message. Friends, if this is where we're headed as a people— 
It will destroy the distinctive and decisive message that God has intended to be given in these last days. Then, even more recently, I was preaching one Sabbath in North Queensland, Australia, and some of the local folk there told me of the South Queensland Conference camp meeting that had taken place the week before. Aside from the concerns about the music and other liberal advances, they told me of one of the speakers named Rinder Brownsma, who attacked the unique last-generation theology of God's people. He promoted his new book, which I mentioned above, and was boldly advocating from the pulpit of the main meeting that we abandon our distinctive message. In pious and deceptive language, of course. And friends, you can be sure that the South Queensland Conference paid for his airfare and whatever honorarium that they might have given him, if any, from the sacred tithe. Imagine that. In other words, leaders who are committed to stripping God's last church of its last-day significance are now foisting these concepts on a mostly unwitting church and being paid from the tithe to do it. That means that its members who go along with this false teaching will not be prepared for the overwhelming surprise that is coming upon the world. It also means that those of us who raise the alarm as this message is designed to do will be marginalized and treated as enemies, just as they now treat those who oppose women's ordination by demeaning them, patronizing them, and belittling them. Friends, the enemy wants to deceive even the very elect. Those who know God's truth, the three angels' messages, or who at least have been given the opportunity to know it, will lose out on eternal life if they accept the false teachings of these seminary professors and church administrators. Keep in mind that they are training the next generation of ministers for God's church. They will not only have their students' blood on their hands, but they will also have the blood of all the people these young pastors lead astray on their hands as well. Here's another statement that we should remember. We have far more to fear from within than from without. The hindrance to strength and success are far greater from the church itself than from the world. Unbelievers have a right to expect that those who profess to be keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will do more than any other class to promote and honor by their consistent lives, by their godly example and their active influence, the cause which they represent. But how often have the professed advocates of the truth proved the greatest obstacles to its advancement? The unbelief indulged, the doubts expressed, the darkness cherished, encouraged the presence of evil angels and opened the way for the accomplishment of Satan's devices. That's Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 122. And now this statement from Our Father Cares, page 263. Those who try to interpret the word according to their own ideas who read it in accordance with their opinions, will never see the truth and will die in their sins. Those who eat of the forbidden tree accept Satan's fallacies in the place of thus saith the Lord, and unless they repent, they will never gain that life which measures with the life of God. As did Adam and Eve, they exclude themselves from the tree of life, the fruit of which perpetuates immortality. Friends, the biggest problem we face today is biblical interpretation. And if we interpret it according to our own ideas, we are like the unfaithful servant who buried his treasure in the ground. And that is what these men and women are trying to do, bury the most important treasure that God has given to his last church on earth. Here's a statement that should grab our attention. 
The enemy of souls has sought to bring in the supposition that a great reformation was to take place among Seventh-day Adventists, and that this reformation would consist in giving up the doctrines which stand as the pillars of our faith and engage in the process of reorganization. Were this reformation to take place, what would result? The principles of truth that God, in His wisdom, has given to the remnant church would be discarded. Our religion would be changed. The fundamental principles that have sustained the work for the last 50 years would be accounted as error. A new organization would be established. Books of a new order would be written. A system of intellectual philosophy would be introduced. The founders of this system would go into the cities and do a wonderful work. The Sabbath, of course, would be lightly regarded, as also the God who created it. Nothing would be allowed to stand in the way of the new movement. The leaders would teach that virtue is better than vice, but God being removed, they would place their dependence on human power, which without God is worthless. Their foundation would be built on the sand, and storm and tempest would sweep away the structure. That's from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 204. I believe it is rather amazing and even somewhat thrilling that we have actually come to such a time as this. A system of intellectual philosophy has been introduced. Books of a new order have and are being written to lead God's people in persistent opposition to God's will for them just before Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. Just at the very time when they should be perfecting their characters through Christ's power, seminary professors and church leaders are publicly teaching that it is impossible. Nothing is being allowed to stand in the way of the new movement, and they are trying to change our religion with considerable success. You see, my friends, we are very near the time when the great shaking will take place, and only those who have the seal of God will survive it. Even the very elect will be deceived, if possible. That's what Jesus himself says. Listen to his words from Matthew 24, verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Couple Jesus' statement with this one from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 81. The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be, rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened with imprisonment and death. How easy will it be for those who have opposed the principles of truth as taught by the Bible about the last generation to yield their faith? They are already promoting the ecumenical idea and will easily unite with Rome when pressure is put on the true followers of Christ. I'll continue reading. The contest is between the commandments of God and the commandments of men. In this time, the gold will be separated from the dross in the church. True godliness will be clearly distinguished from the appearance and tinsel of it. Many a star that we have admired for its brilliancy will then go out in darkness Chaff like a cloud will be borne away on the wind, even from places where we see only floors of rich wheat. All who assume the ornaments of the sanctuary, but are not clothed with Christ's righteousness, will appear in the shame of their own nakedness. Now think about this. It has taken over 60 years to get to the place where these men and women can now boldly stand in full-blown opposition to God's true message. 
That shows you how strong last-generation concepts of the Bible really are. It's taken them a long, long time to get to the point where they are nearly able to stone these teachings to death. They are dismissive of the significance of this by falsely saying that it has never been mainstream teaching. The stoning of the figurative Stephen has been going on for a long time, my friends. They will kill him if they can. But remember, from the blood of the martyr, the great apostle Paul was converted and did a mighty work for God. Likewise, if they kill off or marginalize the voice of last-generation doctrine, it will only create a far more powerful force that will rise up to defend God's unique and distinctive truth for the last generation. Friends, some of our brightest lights will go out. If you accept what prominent professors and teachers and other great men of renown say, even if it is in opposition to the plainest statements of inspiration— you will join them in their opposition to the God of heaven and lead others astray. While many of us have been watching false doctrine about righteousness by faith develop among God's people for many years, in more recent times it has manifested itself in the determination by many leaders in some of the most wealthy and powerful divisions of God's church to change the church so that women can be ordained to the ministry. They have now joined forces to oppose their core opposition, those who believe last-generation concepts of the Bible and spirit of prophecy. They see this as the underlying problem in preventing them from achieving their goals. Those who teach last-generation principles are linked to the conservative majority of church members, so they have to attack them. It may well be the crowning act of the enemy in his last efforts to destroy the church that God raised up nearly 200 years ago. Just at the time when the final message is to be given, the enemy has infiltrated God's people and raised up men who will undermine confidence in the Bible message of Revelation 14 and 18 that God has ordained to be given to the world. They undermine confidence in the inspired messenger that God has given to his church to warn them of the apostasy that is coming upon them. They have long ago moved away from the Three Angels logo and replaced it with an ecumenical logo that looks like it came from an evangelical church or a mainstream Protestant church. Here is the description of the methods used in this war against the great controversy theme. It's from Testimonies for the Church, page 295. Satan hopes to involve the remnant people of God in the general ruin that is coming upon the earth. As the coming of Christ draws nigh, he will be more determined and decisive in his efforts to overthrow them. Men and women will arise, professing to have some new light or some new revelation whose tendency is to unsettle faith in the old landmarks. Their doctrines will not bear the test of God's word, yet souls will be deceived. False reports will be circulated, and some will be taken in this snare. They will believe these rumors, and in their turn will repeat them. And thus a link will be formed connecting them to the arch deceiver. This spirit will not always be manifested in an open defiance of the messages that God sends, but a settled unbelief is expressed in many ways. Every false statement that is made feeds and strengthens this unbelief, and through this means many souls will be balanced in the wrong direction. Did you get that? The settled unbelief is expressed in many ways, and it will not always be an open defiance. They can't. There are still too many who would raise the alarm, so they often have to be subtle. But that is the very reason I'm raising the alarm today.
Also, did you notice that they will make false statements that will strengthen their unbelief? That's what's happening now. In every age, false prophets have been the most dangerous enemies Christianity has had. Men have appeared who claim to be champions of truth, professing to have a great burden for the souls of their fellow men, but they taught false doctrines and perverted the truth. The spirit they manifested, the work they wrought, testify to the character of their religion. Such men have arisen and do arise, and will continue to arise in our own day. They will criticize, judge others, will be always ready for controversy, and will resist the truth. That's from Signs of the Times, July 18, 1892. But the next couple of sentences describe exactly what is happening today. Listen carefully. They will put false interpretations upon the scriptures. They will misstate the words of those who advocate truth, and some who listen to them who do not have spiritual discernment will be misled by these false teachers and be found fighting under the black banner of the adversary of God and man. The real target is the testimonies of the spirit of prophecy. I know your danger. If you lose confidence in the testimonies, you will drift away from Bible truth. I have been fearful that many would take a questioning, doubting position, and in my distress for your souls, I would warn you. How many will heed the warning? As you now hold the testimonies, should one be given crossing your track, correcting your errors, would you feel at perfect liberty to accept or reject any part or the whole? That which you will be least inclined to receive is the very part most needed. God and Satan never work in co-partnership. The testimonies either bear the signet of God or that of Satan. A good tree cannot bring forth corrupt fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. By their fruit you shall know them. God has spoken. Who has trembled at his word? That's from the Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 98. Friends, the modern stoning of Stephen is nearly complete. The enemies of God's truth are circling their victim. They want to destroy those that believe in the last generation concepts of Scripture. They want to overthrow your faith. Please don't let them do that. Friends, let us live for Jesus. Let Jesus run your life for you so that the enemy will not be able to get you to sin under any circumstances. You can be an overcomer. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said it so many times in the book of Revelation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we see that there is coming a deception upon us that will deceive the very elect if possible. They are already developing their arguments and starting to put pressure on those that teach the truth for this time. They are seeking to undermine the principles of the last generation. We now understand how this is being done and where it is coming from. But Father, please help us resist the introduction of false teachings among us. And may we live for you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. If you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred and blessed your soul, please consider making a special gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith. The fitting song that you've just heard is called He Hideth My Soul, played by Henry Higgins. The song is recorded on a CD with other lovely hymns and songs called Day by Day. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Day by Day CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. We also have these CDs in Australia, which we will send to our Australian subscribers for $20 AUD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, the UK working on all-seeing eye technology to predict terrorist events. Millions of pounds are being spent on the project, titled Unblinking Eye, that uses cutting-edge identification scanners to track and monitor individuals who are deemed a security threat. The cutting-edge system will analyze human behavior and make appropriate decisions to help defend the UK from attack. The unblinking eye will use microchips to filter and analyze data at rapid speeds and to evaluate, predict, and measure risks and probability outcomes within seconds. Computer specialists and engineers have been invited to work on the project for the British government with a fund of around five million pounds. The Ministry of Defense, the MOD, have opened up a competition to find experts who could help unlock the potential to predict human behavior from vast amounts of data they could upload online. The open source initiative is open to all and will run until 2020, beginning with a series of workshops that will also act as a selection process. They will also discuss the legal, ethical, and moral implications of such technology. Officials admit that handling such large quantities of data will be finding predictors in a haystack, but believe that with modern computer wizardry, it can be done. A spokesman for Defense and Security Accelerator, DASA, who are overseeing the cross-government project, said there are huge amounts of data out there which give clues as to how we behave as individuals, in groups, and as a wider population. There are 2.5 quintillion bytes of data uploaded every day, and we are searching for a way to use it to predict people's behavior, not just here in the UK, but among our adversaries as well. The government also believe that technology could help the army when in conflict and wish to build an international system that could predict attacks and invasions on a global scale. The DASA spokesman continued, It will enable us to predict events and make interventions to prevent problems rising in the first place. At the most basic level, it should improve people's judgments and help them with their decision-making process. It could, for example, help a commanding officer to make an informed decision or deploy or intervene in some way while out on the battlefield. This technology takes years to develop and we are looking to accelerate as rapidly as we can. 
This is another tool developed against terrorism that will one day be used for purposes including predicting and interrupting the work of God's last generation. Spies have been used to oppose God's people for millennia. Why would it be any different in these last days? Records of the history of God's people are predictive of the way predictive technology will be used in the future. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They made a worship law that they knew Daniel would have to break. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Consequently, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel 6, 5, and 11. Next, Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report exposes systemic abuse by priests. Many members of the Catholic Church thought the sexual abuse crisis was mostly in the past. This certainly has been the Church's intent, at least in word. But it is again in the spotlight in the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report. The report of 70 years of abuse in the Church in six dioceses in Pennsylvania found that 300 priests had sexually abused more than 1,000 known victims. In addition to scandals involving the former Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C., In the UK, Australia, Peru, and Chile, and on the verge of papal visit to Ireland, which suffered some of the worst of the worldwide priestly abuse, the head of the United States Bishops' Conference has appealed to the Vatican for external assistance in conducting a blanket investigation into the continued blight of the clerical abuse crisis across the U.S. We already know that one root cause is the failure of Episcopal leadership, Cardinal Daniel DiNardo stated. The result was that scores of beloved children of God were abandoned to to face an abuse of power alone. This is a moral catastrophe. While DiNardo is right about the catastrophe, his solution does not go far enough. Priests violated especially young altar boys and shared them with other priests. When a victim complained of the abuse, Church officials dismissed the accusations, accused the victim of making it up, humiliating him, or making him feel guilty for exposing the perpetrator. The Pennsylvania report, which relied mainly on internal church documents, is the largest investigation of its kind. But it isn't large enough. The report plainly presents evidence that the church's deliberate cover-up frequently resulted in expiration of the statutory limitations period and that law enforcement was overly differential to the church. The grand jury describes how dioceses had a common playbook by which they managed the crisis. This enabled them to escape public accountability. The whole system was organized with a supreme lack of transparency, accountability, and especially justice. The National Catholic Church has become adept at offering shallow and hollow apologies, statements about shock, disgust, and pledging promises. Dioceses are releasing statements emphasizing these crimes concern the past and not the present, stating there are policies in place for a safe future. These pious platitudes do not create transparency or promote trust. The report suggests that church officials have not told the unvarnished truth. They have not admitted to the wrongdoing, but have minimized it, justified it, and made excuses for it. As the report confirms, the current system of choosing bishops relies on cronyism and what could be called a kind of nepotism. The bishops reproduce themselves, and thus no new blood enters the system. Pope Francis, early in his pontificate, established a zero-tolerance policy and a commission to address the crisis and develop solutions. 
But the commission met roadblocks from the Vatican itself. Its own recommendations were not being implemented and communications by victims to leading Vatican departments were being ignored. It was denied vital resources to carry out its work. Irish woman Marie Collins, a prominent survivor and member of the commission, eventually resigned in protest. All of this happened before Peru and Chile and the latest U.S. revelations. Guidelines on the very issue of abuse issued by Rome in 2001, 1962, and 1922 demanded secrecy as a matter of course. It was policy to keep the activities of abuser priests and members of religious orders from coming to light in the public domain. That policy was central to an institutional culture of putting the institution's reputation above the welfare of its members and the victims of its ministers. That culture still lingers within too many bishops worldwide, and even amongst some Vatican officials. The Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report is limited to six local dioceses in Pennsylvania. It was so bad there that it raises questions about the rest of the country, and indeed, since there have been so many revelations of abuse over all the world, whether or not there should be grand juries or the equivalent everywhere. If the Vatican's own papal commission on these issues has floundered amidst resignations, then there is still clearly a deep-seated, malignant institutional culture at the Church's core, of which the abuse crisis is but sadly an acute symptom. In other words, what other crimes are still hidden? This is not simply a series of individual moral failings. It's a crisis of moral corrosion and corruption embedded into the church. Values and virtues have become suppressed, even by those who teach and promote them. For instance, earlier this year, the U.S. bishops yet again resisted calls for greater episcopal accountability, a resistance witnessed all too prevalently throughout the church elsewhere. Pope Francis' solidarity with the victims in his August 20 letter is welcomed by many, but what really needs to happen is for the church to completely dismantle the church's centralized hierarchical system of governance and replace it with something open and accountable. If God's true people are not willing to expose Rome's sins, God will give the task of revealing them to the stones, i.e. the media, grand juries, royal commissions, and other secular bodies. These stones will then prepare the way for the loud cry of the angel that lightens the earth with his glory. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. Next, Missouri to investigate Catholic Church for sexual abuse. The U.S. state of Missouri is launching an investigation of potential sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. Louis. State Attorney General Josh Hawley said, The announcement follows the bombshell report in Pennsylvania confirming even more widespread sexual abuse by priests across the state than had been previously revealed. Hawley said his office does not have the power to force institutions to cooperate with criminal investigations, but was able to launch the inquiry after the archdiocese agreed to help. They say they want to cooperate fully, and I'm confident they will, Hawley told reporters in a conference call. The inquiry initially covers only the archdiocese of St. Louis. Surrounding the state's second largest city and one of five Roman Catholic dioceses in Missouri, Hawley said. He asked the bishops of the four other dioceses to agree to cooperate with the investigation. 
Pennsylvania officials released the results of a two-year grand jury investigation that found evidence that at least a 1,000 people, mostly children, had been sexually abused by some 300 clergymen in the state during the past 70 years. The report said the numbers of actual victims and abusers could be much higher. It was the latest milestone in the state after a grand jury report more than two years ago found a history of monstrous abuse and cover-up in the Altoona-Johnstown diocese. At the time, it emerged that other Pennsylvania dioceses were also under fresh investigation in the biggest exposure of systemic abuse, collusion, and cover-up in the growing scandal over similar abuse was uncovered in Massachusetts by the Boston Globe's investigative journalists almost two decades ago. Similar reports have emerged in Europe, Australia, Chile, prompting lawsuits and investigations, sending dioceses into bankruptcy, and undercutting the moral authority of the leadership of the Catholic Church, which has some 1.2 billion members around the world. As more and more systemic abuse and its cover-up is investigated, the Catholic Church is finally being exposed for what the Bible declares her to be, Babylon the Great. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Revelation 18, verse 2 and 5. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.